amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who made a donation to Spiked over the Christmas period. Your donations make a huge difference and allow us to carry on doing what we're doing. So thanks again, and here's to another year of great Spiked content. Now, on with the podcast. How mad is it? that we, the United Kingdom, have never cut a trade deal with the United States despite 60 years of trying under the EU. That's completely mad. Yet we don't have a trade deal with our single biggest country trading partner, the US, a fifth of our trade, because we're in the EU. Acting alone, we can cut that trade deal. And that doesn't mean that we have to accept the worst excesses of the US economy at all. We can cut that deal in our own right. We're a big, powerful player. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Liam Halligan. Liam is an economist, a writer and a broadcaster. He writes about economics for The Sunday Telegraph. He has previously worked for Channel 4 News and he has written for The Spectator, The New Statesman, Prospect, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. He is co-author with Jared Lyons of Clean Brexit, Why Leaving the EU Still Makes Sense. And his most recent book is Home Truths, The UK's Chronic Housing Shortage, How It Happened, Why It Matters, and The Way to Solve It. Liam, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So we're recording this shortly after a pretty historic election, uh, a Boris landslide, uh, a major drubbing for the Labour Party from its working class heartlands primarily. And it, it strikes me that this election confirms one thing for definite, that the Remain movement is finished, it's over, it surely must now walk away. Does it also confirm, in your view, that Brexit will finally happen? This is one of the historic elections in British history. Since the Second World War, we've had the 45 election when, of course, Attlee beat Churchill. We had the 79 election when Thatcher came to the fore, changed our country. We had the 97 election when Blair swept away complacent, stale Tory rule. And now we've got this election, 2019. Yes, which is the Brexit election, but it's also an election, I think, which could properly reconfigure UK politics. That's an overused word. But if you don't think this is a reconfiguration, the Tories winning Burnley, Wrexham, Rother Valley, uh, Blythe, um, Sedgefield indeed, <laughs> then when do you use the word reconfiguration? I don't think the Remain movement will walk away. Mm -hmm. I think many decent Remain voters, um, many of whom have already reconciled themselves to Brexit years ago. Mm. It was only ever a sort of fifth of the electorate that wanted to keep flogging that dead horse of Remain. I'd say that's now been cut in half. I still think there is a, a hardcore 
uh, of irreconcilables and they have their representatives in uh, the upper echelons of politics. And I'd say they're still massively overrepresented in the upper echelons of politics. You know, since that historic election, where Boris scored a, a, an 80 strong majority off the back of a unequivocally pro Brexit, Brexit now my deal manifesto. Um, I mean, look at what the likes of Caroline Lucas are tweeting. Look at what the people's mm. vote are still tweeting. You know, listen to a podcast called Romaniacs. I mean, these people are completely out to lunch. <laughs> we was robbed. Uh, no, you weren't robbed. You weren't robbed. We had the referendum in June 2016. Mm. You lost. We had an election in June 2017 when the two main parties backed implementing Brexit. They got 83% of the vote. We had the European elections in May 2019. The Brexit party monstered everyone, even though they're only a few weeks old. And then we've just had an arguably unpopular prime minister in many ways, uh, in a field of unpopularity uh, across the board, winning an election with a landslide on a Brexit now ticket. So I do think I'm afraid that this row will go on. Mm. The row will be transferred to uh, the trade deal. Even before then, I would be very surprised if many Labour MPs didn't fail to back Boris's deal when Parliament cranks back up in the next few days. And who knows what that ermine-clad chamber of Remain, the House of Lords, mm. might do. All those people there who have been plotting, scheming to stop Brexit since the day after the June 2016 referendum. The really alarming thing, and hopefully future historians will write about this, uh, is the how long it took for us to potentially get Brexit. I mean, we don't have it yet. And as you say, it's going to go on for a bit longer than this. But uh, we have voted for it so many times. I mean, there was the sweeping victory of UKIP in the EU elections a few years ago. We voted for Cameron when he promised that he would have a referendum. And then Indeed. in Tuesday, we voted for Brexit Half itself. a dozen major democratic events least, going right yeah. back to the June 2014 European elections yeah. when UKIP won. They got 27% of the vote. They beat everyone else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have voted for Brexit or for the right to have Brexit again and again and again. And still there is this layer of the political establishment, which throughout all of that, including after the referendum itself, which was the most shocking thing, said, well, you can't have it. You didn't, you don't know what you want. You're confused. It's not a good idea. We're not going to let it happen. I wonder if the thing that's different this time, because what we've had after this, as you rightly say, historic election, and I want to come on to that, why it's historic, but uh, I wonder if this is different because we've had Michael Heseltine saying it's over. We've had Lord Adonis, Lord Adonis saying he's going to move out of the country or get a different passport or whatever else he's going to do. He's in a meltdown. So there have been some of those key anti-democratic voices have said, okay, maybe we've lost. I mean, firstly, we have to resist the temptation to say thank you to them because they should have recognised this three and a half years ago if they actually believed in democracy. But uh, how much longer can that layer of the establishment, the, the Romaniac layer of the establishment, how much longer can they go on pushing against what is so obviously the democratic will without just becoming tyrants? Tyrants is a very strong word. I agree. I mean, you know, I've known... Andrew Adonis for many, many years. Andrew Adonis has a tremendous amount to contribute to public life and has contributed a tremendous amount, as has Michael 
Hesseltine, I don't share entirely the politics of either man, but they've both done good in public life. I just think they've been slightly unhinged mm. by this issue. Michael Hesseltine's devoted much of his adult life to the, the, the sort of, I won't say pro-European, because I'm pro-European, mm, you're pro-European, yeah. <laughs> pro-EU cause. And I think Andrew's done some excellent things in, in schools and, and transport policy. But they have now conceded, like you, I'm not going to say thank you, I'm going to say with good grace, it's about time. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time, yeah? Enough, just leave it now. But there are still many voices who won't leave it, who will... Um, yeah, no one's looking for some kind of free pass. No one's looking for Her Majesty's opposition to throw roses in, in mm. Boris's path, mm. right? But the public has been through, uh, you know, something of a nervous breakdown about this. Families are deeply divided. This has really upset people. And people are upset less about the issue than the fact that this is messing with our democracy. Yeah. Implementing Brexit because we've all voted for it, is now and has for been for a long time far, far more important than the various policy changes which Brexit may bring about. Yeah. This is the massive existential question. What kind of a country are we? You know, we're not just a democracy. We're the United Kingdom. The world is looking. Mm. We are massively disproportionately powerful as a uh, an example to much of the rest of the world. It's not, you know, I'm not from a colonial family and nor are you, mm. Brendan. We're Irish immigrants, right? But we know how important the idea of British democracy is for all its failings over many generations. It performs a hugely important role and these days a largely positive role, talking about freedom, talking about uh, um, social mobility and hopefully some fairness in mm. international relations. And to try and crush a massive democratic event just because you don't like it, just because your big corporate mates don't mm. like it, the big bankers, the big pharmaceutical companies, just because some of the people who are espousing a cause, you think they're a bit dodgy. You know, these aren't good intellectual arguments. We have to get this thing done. We are way beyond the point where you can now reasonably oppose the principle of Brexit. Mm. I wouldn't use the word tyrant. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sink to their level. There's been so much name-calling, and much of that name-calling, I'm afraid to say, and I'm sure you've experienced this, has been by Remainers to people who weren't particularly ideological leavers. I mean, in many cases, the, it was quite a marginal decision. It was a balanced decision. You can come honestly down on one line, side of the line or the other, but it's a binary decision. It mm -hmm. literally is. Mm -hmm. And to call people out and to call them fascist and racist and stupid and xenophobic because they happen to have come down on one side of a line in a binary referendum is, I think, unforgivable. And this goes to the core of the problem. You know, as, as Churchill said, the English, and in, English in particular, the English never drew a line that they couldn't blur, right? The genius of this country, living on a small rock, with very few natural resources, all comers from the world, come and make something of yourself. The genius of this country is that when we've got to a crunch point, we've managed to blur the line and we've managed to use a little bit of ambiguity with a huge amount of charm mm. and a lot of uh, rhetorical gymnastics to rub along and make things work in quite a constricted space. In a binary referendum, you can't blur the line, right? It's not or one. There are very good reasons to stay in the European Union. 
There are very good reasons to leave the European Union. I think the latter is stronger. There are no reasons at all and no justification for being half in, half out, pretending you want to leave when actually you want to remain. These are when the problems start. That's mm. why I got together with Jared Lyons back in late 2016 and wrote a book, Clean Brexit, mm. to say, look, if we're going to go for this, you have to do it, the whole hog. You have to leave the single market. You have to leave the customs union. Otherwise, you will send the European Union and Brussels into a, a tailspin because if you try and break up those four freedoms, the whole the whole edifice will come crumbling down. Soft Brexit is actually a really dangerous thing yeah. because you are messing with the internal mechanisms of what is already a very, very fragile, uh, precarious structure which is the European Union. So, you know, these kind of progressive soft remainers who who think soft Brexit's a good outcome because mm. it's kind of a compromise. It's an absolutely ghastly compromise. It's like leaping halfway across a chasm. Mm. Uh, I completely agree with that. I mean, there are really two things to Brexit. Firstly, there is the question of the policies that will come from Brexit and how we will enact it and how long that will take. But then there is this other question that has been raised through this whole process, which is the question of democracy. And that has become, in many ways, the most important question, because I think a lot of people are quite shocked or, or, or are quite surprised that democracy might actually be more fragile than they had previously thought. And over the past three and a half years, I think one of the problems, you talk about the, the name-calling that's come from sections of the Remain movement, I think that's very true. And it's the Remain movement became almost like a culture war against the white working classes in particular, who were just seen as stupid and dim and racist, and they didn't know what they even, were voting e for. Even, Brendan, the very, very highly educated white yes, working classes. absolutely, yeah. I'm looking at you, yeah, my friend. Right, so <laughs> those, you know, and, and those of us who come from those sections of society know that all the prejudices that were spouted about them are not true. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, because we both recognise that this sentiment has exploded over the past three and a half years, and it's come from some pretty, you know, it's become pretty unhinged in some instances. But to what extent was that always there? To what extent was there always this kind of lingering, within sections of the political elite, was there always this lingering distrust of the masses and, and of the institution of democracy? And it simply came bursting through the surface in relation to Brexit. Okay, we've got to be very careful here how we define uh, our terms. There are many, many millions of British people who were deeply saddened by the results on June 20, in June 2016. I completely understand that. It was built up into a culture war. Mm. The, the, the Remain side, Britain and Europe side, you know, basically created an environment aided and abetted by their huge chumocracy in the broadcast media that if you voted for leave, you were all these nasty, nasty things. So a lot of people felt if leave won, then all the nasty people had won, whereas that's actually not the case because many, even more decent people voted for leave. But I totally understand it took a lot of people some time to come to terms with that. I think Theresa May was completely emotionally illiterate as well as being politically inept when straight after the referendum, as I advised her to her face in private meetings, I literally said to her, Prime Minister, you need immediately to guarantee the rights of the 3.2 million EU nationals here, irrespective of what Brussels does. Take the higher ground. Be the bigger person in the room, right? 
British citizens in Spain, in Germany, we're all over the place, right? Of course we are. They're anyway protected by the Vienna Convention, yeah, which means that your natural rights can't be trounced by an international treaty. Mm. A lot of this game playing, a lot of this battle over the rights of EU citizens one way or another, it's largely for show. Mm. Now, I'm not saying the people involved, their lives aren't in turmoil. Absolutely they are. All the more reason to get your face in front of the camera, say straight down the barrel of the lens, late June, early July 2016, we are Britain. We are an open, tolerant country. We have in repeated international surveys, and we still do to this day, the highest degree of tolerance for and approval ratings of the process of immigration in the EU. Mm. There's only Canada and New Zealand in the world that's more tolerant mm. uh, and approving of immigration, according to the Pew surveys. We are saying to all the 3.2 million people here, we're delighted you're here. You're our friends, you're our neighbours, our spouses, our, our lovers. Don't think that we're going to drum you out of here. Mm. Whatever happens, whatever your government says in continental Europe, whatever the EU says, whatever any of the Eurocrats say, you're all right. You can stay. We're guaranteeing that. And the country would have cheered, yeah. right? Not even the, the hardest-nosed Farageistas would have disapproved of that. They were actually advocating it, yeah. some of them, the smarter ones, and, and indeed Farage himself, to be fair to him. So she should have done that, and she didn't mm. do that. And that was really, really dumb. Yeah. So to get back to your question, there are many, many Remainers who I totally understand it was emotionally turbulent for them and they were deeply upset, deeply disappointed, the sort of interrail generation. I am part of that generation and I understand why they uh, were distressed and alarmed. And that includes most, you know, my friends and people I love dearly. And I'm sure the same with you, Mm. Brendan. But almost all of them have now reconciled themselves. They've read up a little bit. They've realized there's a lot of spin in the press and actually it's going to be okay. And of course, we're going to sort these things out. And yes, your kid can still do an exchange in, you know, you can still go to France, you can still go to Germany, but hey, we might do some student exchange deals with China Mm. and with Brazil and with America more than we do. I mean, so you've got people on the Remain side who are entirely reconciled, yeah? entirely reconciled. And that's why I'm afraid Joe Swinson's deeply illiberal, undemocratic revoke strategy absolutely crashed and bombed, deservedly so. Because mm. even, you know, some of the most keen Remainers didn't want it because they realised it was insane. Yeah. But you still have, Brendan, a sort of hardcore, I'd say 10% of the population massively overrepresented in certainly the upper house of commons, massively overrepresented among commentators and broadcasters, I'm afraid, who are just not going to give this up. I expect that's true. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much longer they can sustain it for in the face of a new confident government and in the face of people thinking, guys, it's over, it's done and dusted, but we'll wait and see. But one thing I wanted to come back to you on is in relation to clean Brexit and, and what you understand by the term clean Brexit, the title of your your book that you wrote with Gerard Lyons. Because one thing that you've spoken about, and I very much agree with this, is that the is the mythical it well, firstly, as you've just described, a soft Brexit compromise would be a disaster. A hard Brexit is basically just a phrase that was invented. Post-referendum to describe simply leaving the European Union. So one of the problems I think we've had over the past three years is the, is the use of language to depict 
people and things in a particular light. You know, we're always on the cliff edge, hard Brexit, the billionaire's Brexit, or as someone else called it, even though lots of billionaires are in favour of the European Union. So describe to us what you understand by the phrase clean Brexit, which I think even clean Brexit is is a a phrase that's born out of the necessity of clarifying what these things actually mean. What it it means is to be, well, firstly, it's to implement a democratically mandated decision. If you, Mm. the campaign slogan was, we want to take back control of our laws, borders, and our money, right? And our trade, yeah? You can only do those things if you're outside the single market and you're outside the customs union. Being outside the single market means you're no longer paying a multi-billion pound contribution to Brussels every year. It means that you are not under ECJ uh, jurisdiction, European Court of Justice, so the supremacy of British law as decided by uh, Parliament and the government of the day. And if you're outside the customs union, that means that you then cut your own trade deals. Uh, It also means something that's remarkably um, uh, uncommented on. Uh, British shoppers are not paying over the odds for all kinds of goods under the common external tariff, which the UK pays disproportionately because we're the only country currently in the EU that trades more with the non-EU than with the EU. So our poorer people who disproportionately spend lots of money on clothes and uh, food and shoes and things like that, goods that are massively protected coming into the EU from outside world because of the producers of those goods in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, predominantly, not the UK, we pay over the odds. And then those massive tariffs that our shoppers pay, four-fifths of that money then goes straight to Brussels. Mm. Uh, so it's not even as if it goes to the British taxpayer, which then, of course, disappears because we're a net contributor. Yeah. So it's just axiomatically true that if you campaign on a slogan of taking back control of laws, borders, money, and trade, you need to be outside the single market and the customs union. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing is... I personally think, as an economist who has studied both structures my entire adult life, uh, almost uniquely in the media, as somebody who's a prominent columnist, I actually have genuine research academic experience Mm. of the single market and the customs union. And the single market is massively overstated in terms of its advantages. There's very little evidence that the UK has actually benefited very much from the single market when you consider the democratic sacrifices that we've made and the fiscal sacrifices that we've made in terms of the annual payments to be in it. You know, the U- the US and China do hundreds of billions of dollars of trade with the EU from outside the single market, mm. okay? So you don't need to be in the single market to have access to the single market. That blurring of in mm. and access to has been completely deliberate and completely dishonest. First point. Second point, the single market in services, which is a treaty that we signed and negotiated hard, basically in practice doesn't exist. Why? Because Britain is a global superpower in services. When our service industry providers try and sell services in France, Germany, Spain, right, they're blocked often. They then go to court. The ECJ decides tough. It happens again and again and again. In fact, David Cameron himself launched a campaign in 2014 Mm. to try and actually get access to preferential markets for our services under the Single Market Act, which is constantly denied to our service provider exporters. Mm. So in the bit that we're really good at, world-class at, 
we're blocked anyway. Yeah. So a lot of the <laughs> academic models don't consider how it's actually implemented in real life. Yeah. So, and in terms of the customs union, the customs union is a protectionist racket. The customs union puts a huge tariff barrier around a group of countries, which when we joined it, and it was only nine countries, was 35% of global GDP. Now we're about to leave it, and it's going to be 27 countries. It's only going to be 16% of global GDP. And most of the growth, 90% of the growth, is outside. Mm -hmm. So we are putting a massive tariff barrier around ourselves in the customs union, upsetting 85% of the world economy, which is where all the growth is, preventing us from doing good trade deals with those countries because they can't get proper access because of the customs union and the tariff barriers. And the tariff barriers largely favour other countries within the European Union. And it costs us billions of pounds yeah. a year with our shoppers paying the common external tariff. It is not true, Brendan, that big blocks make better trade deals. Look at the trade deals the South Koreans have cut or the Chileans have cut, or the Singaporeans have cut. They've cut trade deals with a much, much bigger global footprint mm. than the EU has. The EU isn't very good at cutting trade deals because it's 27-dimension chess before you even come up with a negotiating position. Mm. And in that 27-dimension chess, the UK has not fared well because we're a different economy. We're a service-driven economy, unlike most of the other big, powerful European economies who dominate those trade talks. So we end up with trade deals that simply don't work for us. And in some cases, no trade deals whatsoever. How mad is it that we, the United Kingdom, have never cut a trade deal with the United States despite 60 years of trying mm -hmm. under the EU? Mm -hmm. That's completely mad. Yet we don't have a trade deal with our single biggest country trading partner, the US, a fifth of our trade, because we're in the EU, because mm -hmm. the French and the Spanish and the Germans will never accept some of the trade-offs involved. Acting alone, well, fifth, sixth biggest economy in the world, uh, we're no slouches, we can cut that trade deal. And that doesn't mean that we have to accept the worst excesses of the US economy at all. We can cut that deal in our own right. We're a big, powerful player. You know, if the Swiss, the 21st biggest economy in the world, can do a trade deal with the Chinese in 18 months, I think they're going to be quite interested in doing a deal with the UK. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Sticking with the Brexit stuff for a bit, I want to ask you about the role of Ireland. You, you and I both come from London Irish backgrounds. We are plastic paddies for Brexit, which I think we should set up a, a movement under that name. Plenty of them. Plenty of them. Plenty absolutely. Of them. And one of the things that you've written about and I've written about is the role of uh, the T-shirt Leo Varadkar in particular in terms of doing the EU's bidding against Brexit. What's your view of the of the role that the Irish government has allowed itself to to play in relation to the whole Brexit phenomenon, particularly since 2017? The first thing that people like you and I should acknowledge, Brendan, is how woefully underinformed about Ireland the British media is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pathetic. You and I obviously take a special interest in Ireland, but when we talk to you know professional 
British political experts about Ireland. It's just insane the amount they they can barely name the two parties, right? Yeah. And know the Absolutely. difference between them, which is just ridiculous. Mm. Which reflects the fact, by the way, that having an English education as you and I had, there's very little Irish history in it. Mm. I wonder why that is. Mm. <laughs> we all know the reason. <laughs> so I would acknowledge all of that. I'd acknowledge Irish people's frustration mm-hmm. that the Brits just don't understand. I would acknowledge to my core how important to Irish modern identity the European Union is and has been. It's been all about throwing off the English yoke, Yeah, understandably so after a thousand years and more of, I will use the word tyranny there, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's justified. I do understand, again, to my core, the importance of the Good Friday Agreement. I reported the Good Friday Agreement for the Financial Times, and I was literally writing the splash with tears streaming down my face. Mm. So I do totally understand the Irish kind of anguish Mm. that yet again, this massive clumsy neighbor, this behemoth to their East is doing something that after, you know, 10, 20 years of not just relative peace, but the best relations possibly in the history of these two islands, right? the Brits go and do something that, you know, messes it all up again. So I totally understand the lack of patience. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I need to acknowledge that mm-hmm. because it's just unanswerably true. Having said that, this is a democratic decision. It's a reasonable decision by the British public. And you'd expect the Irish, of all people on the face of the earth, to understand the importance of democratic decision-making and self-determination. And I'm a big admirer of Ender Kenny. Maybe it's because he's a a Mayo man, but I do think he's a pragmatist. I'm not judging one way or the other the circumstances under which he stopped being the the, the T-shirt. But when Brexit happened, I was lucky enough. I've got lots of contacts in the Irish government, as I'm sure you have. I spoke with many people uh, in the Irish diplomatic service as Brexit was approaching. and, And while there was some concern... It wasn't anything that we couldn't overcome. It wasn't anything that was insurmountable. And in fact, Ender Kenny, after June 2016, while saying we're concerned about this, we want to make sure that this is sorted out, he and the British government set up working groups of civil servants, many of whom I spoke with, uh, to sort out what was basically a technical and administrative Mm. issue. And at the time, Nar Cody, who's the head of the Irish border Force, the equivalent of HMRC in Ireland, in front of uh, a parliamentary committee, he said he's almost 100% certain, this is under Ender Kenny, there's no need for any extra infrastructure on the Irish border mm. if Britain leaves the single market and the customs union. He said that, and countless academic studies have said that, countless customs experts have said that. Yet the British government was still very mindful that the Irish were nervous, right? Not least because people like me were jumping up and down about it, talking to special advisors and saying, look, you've got to sort this out. Mm. In fact, I I said to Downing Street pretty soon after May came in, the first thing that she needs to do, because she'd never actually even been to Ireland, right? Astonishingly. I mean, you and I went there every summer, right? (laughs) You were effed off to Ireland so you didn't get in trouble with the police. (laughs) My suggestion to her, and I put it in print and I wrote it in the Irish Times and I wrote it in the Sunday Business Post. So this isn't just clandestine chats in the Red Lion pub in Westminster. 
with, you know, nice boys I was at university with. No, I was saying this publicly. She needs to go to Ireland as a brand new British conservative prime minister and become, at this time of nervousness, the first ever conservative leader, the first ever conservative prime minister to speak in the doll. Mm. And no one has still. Blair did because Alistair Mm. Campbell gets it. He saw an open call and he went for it. No Tory leader has ever spoken in the doll. How many years has it been? Late 40s? Wow. I mean, well, well, free state. Mm. (laughs) Parliament's been there, right? 100 years. And no British conservative leader, whether they're leader of the opposition or prime minister, has spoken in the doll. And and, and we're neighbours and like... 15% 15% of Brits are basically paddies like mm. me and you, mm. right? And you've got half a million Irish-born living here, mm. which is a big chunk of the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> Four and a half, five million. I mean, yeah. And yet a Conservative Prime Minister has not addressed the Parliament of our near neighbour, mm. a country that a lot of the world doesn't really understand why we're different anyway. Of course, mm. we understand. And, and so my my suggestion to her was just go there straight away and explain that you understand there's nervousness, mm. but we're sure we can fix it. And Enda Kenny offered it to her yeah. and she didn't take it, which was mad. She went to Turkey or something instead. I mean, <laughs> literally it was insane. And these are, these are like, these are like the footnotes of the footnotes of the footnotes of history. This yeah. stuff barely got in the papers. It's a future historian is going to have to piece together, you know, tiny little lines in columns by obsessives like me. She should have gone. Mm. They realized it was a mistake because in the Lancaster House speech in January 2017, which was the first statement of Britain's Brexit policy, which was basically a clean Brexit, which very much reflected a a pamphlet that Gerard Lyons and I had written, she laid out the core uh, objectives for the British government. And after securing our own laws, securing our own borders, number two, relationship between Scotland and Britain, number three, Number four of about 12 was Britain's relationship with Ireland. And she used words. Again, tears pricked my eyes. I was at the back of the hall listening to it. She used words that a conservative prime minister could never have used until very, very recently Mm. about the special bonds of of blood Mm. that between us means there will always be a a special relationship Mm. for, for a Tory leader. And yet she blew it. She blew it. And she blew it because she didn't do the groundwork under Kenny. And then when Kenny left in June 2017, it also happened to be the month when she lost her majority and became contingent dependent on the DUP. And Barnier saw an opportunity. Varadkar, like a number of sort of half British Irish leaders of the past or half not Irish Irish leaders of the past, of course, he's got... English-born siblings, has spent quite a lot of his life in the UK. I'm not taking anything away from him, but as uh, you know, as a Fine Gael politician, you can often be portrayed as being you know not quite nationalist enough. As a, a Fine Gael Taoiseach with close links to England, young, relatively inexperienced, just like De Valera, US-born, mm. Patrick Pearce, mm. UK-born, you know, you kind of overdo the nationalism bit. To compensate, yeah, you, you you wear the green jersey, but you wear the green pajamas as well, yeah. And a lot of that was going on. And Barnier, wily politician that he is, 
realized there was a really good way here to put the finger on Britain and to alarm the British public to say we're going backwards, we're going to go back to the terrible troubles, the newsreels of our youth, which disturbed you and me, but disturbed the whole, because we were Irish kids, right? But mm. disturbed the whole of Britain. And so what became conventional wisdom were lurid claims that if Britain leaves a single market in the customs union, there are going to be military watchtowers. Yeah. Which and, and, and Varadka allowed that to happen and he stoked it up and he stoked it up and he stoked it up to the point, Brendan, even though where there are currently cameras on the main road from the Republic to the North, even though you have endless independent academics and even studies commissioned by the European Parliament saying there is no need for any extra infrastructure. It's paperwork. Mm. And if you do a trade deal, there's even less paperwork. Varadkar used that issue, that non-issue, to exert massive leverage over the UK in order to try and keep Britain in the customs union, which is entirely a pecuniary thing, Mm. in order to get money from Britain every year via the common external tariff, in order that Ireland and Brussels would stay close. Maybe he's getting some a few extra years reprieve on his corporation tax or the double Irish or, or whatever it is. That's certainly what some... Irish civil servants have told me that's the mm. quid pro quo. Maybe it will be the, the, the moment when Ireland starts to become a massive net contributor. It's all, all, already a net contributor as a country with one of the highest GDPs per head, far higher than the UK mm. in the European Union. It's going to start contributing a lot more. Maybe that time will be delayed for a bit more. He also got into a sort of Dutch auction of anti-Britishness with Simon Coveney, who yeah. of course was outraged that Vraga became Taoiseach in the first place. So there was some nasty intra-party politics going on. I'm not saying for a minute, I'll be accused now, although you just don't understand. I, I'm not saying that if you put border posts up, people wouldn't shoot. They would. I mean, mm. of course, there are irredentists on both sides, the Catholic and the Protestant community. I don't know which one you're from. I'm from, I happen to be from both. Catholic. But, but of course, that infrastructure would be flashpoints if it was needed. But it's not needed. Yeah. It's not needed. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with both aspects, which is that obviously there would be nervousness among of course. It, within Ireland if there's going to be this huge change. All the more reasons to have the neighbor. two leaders together, you know, putting their arms around each other as Ender Kenny tried to. Yeah. Get the civil servants working together and say, look, we, we've got this. We can solve this. Yeah. And then instead what we have is the kind of, you know, pretty willful exploitation of some of those concerns by Barnier and, and others to the, to the end of weakening the they case They weren't even for involved with the Good Friday Agreement. I reported the thing. They turned up for the last press conference. Yeah. The EU had nothing to do. <laughs> absolutely. With the, it was the Americans, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Who was massively involved. But one thing that's come out of that process is, so Varadkar definitely engaged in some Brit bashing, at, perhaps as an overcompensation for this perception of him as being insufficiently... Irish or insufficiently nationalist or whatever else it might have been. But what's happened as a consequence of that, or certainly in the aftermath of that, is that among the Irish chattering classes or the Irish political class, media class, there is this profound... So you say quite rightly that lots of Brits, particularly in the media, don't understand Ireland and don't know the history very well or the political arrangements. And I completely agree with that. At the same time, there is a lot of, there are a lot of talking heads in Dublin in particular who don't understand Brexit and yeah. don't understand the motor behind Brexit. Is this the Fintan O'Toole moment? The Fintan O'Toole, all these people. <laughs> and I've been, I've done numerous 
RTE discussions over the past year yeah. or two. And what's striking is I'm always on there as the kind of the, w- the weirdo who yeah. says people still want Brexit and the weirdo who says working class people support Brexit. Yeah. And Which then we know they do. And we know they do. It's been proven right by the uh, recent election. And so I think, you know, this idea from Fintan O'Toole and others that Brexit is just an outburst of kind of um, imperial nostalgia, I think their misunderstanding of British democracy is is equally bad. And I think the 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 problem with all of this is that Anglo-Irish relations, which had been pretty well mended over the past 20 years, have become pretty frayed yeah. by this and process. That, and this is what, what – this. why do I bother to put my head above the parapet on Irish media, just because I know everyone in the studio is going to be trying to trying to kill me. The whole discussion is rigged to try and kill me. You know, I get asked to do the Late Late Show. Mm-hmm. You know what that means. That's yeah. absolutely massive. Late Late Show comes to London for the first time in 40 years. They ask me on, right? They ask me on to talk about traditional Irish music, which I happen to play to a reasonable standard. Mm. And yet I, I turn up and I'm suddenly – sitting next to Nigel Farage in a discussion with Alistair Campbell. <laughs> yeah. And my kids are in the audience. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Alish yeah. and Maeve are in the audience. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thanks. But you know, the, the- and it's because of people like me, right. And my dad, that Irish people can come over now mm. and be accountants and be software mm. developers and be treated equally. Mm. Cause well, I wasn't. And my dad certainly wasn't. Mm. And yet, we're trying to like tell Irish people what's actually happening in the UK. Yeah. And yet we're the bad guys because we're not giving them the message that panders to the sentiment that everything about Britain must be bad. Yeah. It's completely outrageous. There's an anti-Britishness in Irish media circles, which is incredibly unhelpful and wrong-headed in the indulgent. way in which it, and indulgent. Deeply and- self-indulgent. Because these people are often from families who have been, you know, pandering to the Brits for several oh, generations, right? Yeah. These were, people, these were people whose families were in Dublin Castle both before and after 1922. One of the things I find most frustrating about that whole discussion, and you may have experienced this too when, when I've been involved in Irish media discussions, is this kind of, uh, I guess you, t- you could call it migrant shaming. So they will say things to me like, well, he's not really Irish. So the Irish Sun published a column about me saying he claims to be Irish. And you have this situation well, it's a where- genealogical fact. <laughs> yeah, but you have this really bizarre situation where they're able to say that very often because their families were in a more comfortable position yeah. than mine Your was. Your family left And therefore because, I had to yeah, leave the country. Yeah. So- uh, but I think all of this, the, the Anglo-Irish fallout over Brexit is raising, I mean, it, it's irritating and both sides have a, a lack of understanding or historical depth in relation to the other side. But at the same time, it is raising the some really, it is yeah. raising the temperature and yeah. it's raising some really interesting unresolved questions from history, particularly in relation to the fact that there's a border in Ireland, particularly in relation to the unionist nationalist question, which is ongoing, the fragility in some ways of the Irish establishment, which we saw with the 100th anniversary of, of the Doyle celebrations and and the 100th anniversary of 1916 as well. There is this sense that, uh, and I think you've talked about this and, and others have too, that the EU is very important to the Irish Republic because it gives the Irish Republic a sense of um, presence on the world stage. Free of the Brits. Free of the Brits as an independent nation. Oh, I'm which, into that. Uh, oh, which I'm is, into which that. is great. But I, the but I wonder. Per head, they're some of the most skilled diplomats that have ever walked the earth, yeah. right? 
But I wonder if there's a problem if if the Irish Republic is gaining its public its international presence via an institution which doesn't really have Irish interests at heart. Is that a problem? And is there a situation where Ireland looks like it's bashing the Brits through the Brexit process, but actually could well be undercutting itself by wedding itself too closely to the uh, European I, I, machine? I think there is that danger. Okay, the, the reason I've decided that I speak out about this stuff is partly because um, in, in my book with Jerry, which came out you know in the summer of 2017, so it was mostly written you know in early 2017, there's a chapter on Ireland which basically foresees the whole thing mm. before Varadkar had even come in. And I actually delayed publication to include it and sent the publisher wild. But imagine having a book <laughs> about Brexit without a yeah. chapter on Ireland. Because yeah. I, I could see it happening. I could see it coming down the track from going to Ireland a lot and talking to people. And so I decided to basically set myself up to be – deeply criticised by the Irish ambassador to London and and various Irish politicians and various luminaries in the Irish commentariat because I realised that unless this problem was resolved, and it hasn't properly been resolved yet, it's just been parked, mm. but it can be resolved quite easily. So I'm not particularly worried about it at this point. But I decided to try and, uh, as as one of the very, very few people who has the ability to write in British newspapers at the sort of highest level, who also has a grip on Irish history and Irish um, views on, on the, on this issue. I felt it was my responsibility to do it actually, mm. to try and be one of those bridge people. And I, and I know you have too, and we do not get thanked for it. Mm. Uh, I also did it because maybe a bit like you as well. I spent a lot of my, youth getting massively racially abused because of my Irishness by teachers and, and uh, my contemporaries. And I'm absolutely determined that won't happen to my children with their mm. Irish names and their Irish physiognomy and their Irish attitudes, mm. their Irish gifts and talents. And I, and I, and that's why, you know, I go out of my way to try and tell senior politicians what, what they should be thinking in, mm. in this area. And sometimes I'm listened to and sometimes uh, I'm not. I do have uh, a deep concern, though, that this issue could flare up again unless Dublin takes a decision that there's just no more mileage in this. Yeah, yeah. This strategy is not helping anybody, mm. right? Think about it. Now, I'm not going to jump on the Erexit bandwagon. I think that's completely counterproductive, right? I don't expect Fintan O'Toole to be writing in British papers in 2014-15, oh, the Brits should leave the EU, right? Mm. Even though he's got as much claim to be English as I have to be Irish, right? And I'm not going to jump onto the Irish Times and the Sunday Business Post and say, why doesn't Ireland leave the EU? I am an Irish citizen. Maybe you are too. I've been an Irish citizen most of my life. I can vote in Irish elections. But I don't think – yeah. I shouldn't be using my power as a commentator to try and swing the or impact in any way the debate in Ireland on Erexit. And I think it's far too early for Ireland. I don't actually think it's economically right for Ireland at this point to leave the European Union, if I'm being objective about it. Uh, the customs union's arguments are very different for Ireland. The pattern of trade is very different. The mix of their trade is very different compared to the trade of Britain. But I will say this. Ireland is already a net contributor. It's about to become a very, very big net contributor. 
And I will say this also. Imagine when Britain has done a trade deal with the United States. Britain, the United States, a trade deal spanning Mm. Ireland, a trade deal that is geographically, culturally, and economically made for Ireland, right? A trade deal with two countries which are home to literally tens of millions Mm. of Irish people, if you Mm. include the whole of North America. Mm. And are you telling me the Irish can't do a trade deal, can't join that block Mm. where they would be so welcome Absolutely, because they've got a trade deal with Lithuania? Does that really make sense? (laughs) Is that really what's good for Ireland? Now, another, if you look at Irish trade statistics, and it's an incredible story, it's a story of massive determination, and commercial resilience, uh, and business genius, actually, the trade statistics, the mix of trade since 73, when the Irish joined the European Economic Community, along with the Brits and the Danes. And I actually remember it, I was four, and I was in the West of Ireland at the time with my dad, mm. and I remember people talking about it, you yeah. know the knees of blokes drinking in bars and I'm hearing all this stuff. (laughs) When Ireland joined the European economic community, 50% of the trade was with Britain. It's now more like 20%. Mm. The diversity has been incredible. And some of that diversification has gone towards the rest of the EU, but a huge amount of it's gone to the States and a huge amount of it's gone to the emerging markets. Mm -hmm. The Irish are all over the emerging markets, massively disproportionately punching above their weight. And it strikes me that the commercial future of Ireland is partly with the European continent, absolutely. And there are many Irish professionals working at a very high level, great linguists, brilliant at at mixing in, just like the Brits, funnily enough. Mm. What surprise, we're sort of the same. Mm. But also in the Americas and the emerging markets, it it makes even less sense for the Irish, one of the most globalised countries in the world, if not the most globalised country in the world, given the tiny domestic economy compared to the size of the ambition and, and, and the influence, it makes even less sense in the long term for the Irish to be inside that customs union yeah. and wedded yeah. to the slowest growing continent in the world than it does for the Brits. At this point, yeah. I'm not saying that the Irish should leave the European Union, yeah. but I think in the end, it's commercially, uh, demographically inevitable, culturally inevitable that they will, because the Irish are part of the Anglosphere. Yeah. That's where their people are. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. So we've established, I think, or or we agree, certainly, that this new government, the Boris Landslide, the election that we've recently had, signals a pretty significant historic realignment in British politics and in in the British population. And Brexit could well happen soon, although, you know, there will be ups and downs, of course. And you've talked a lot about the kind of policies we should pursue post-Brexit or as part of Brexit. And one of the key ones that you talk about is the issue of house building. And so your new book, Home Truths, is about the astonishing failure, really, to build a sufficient number of houses for British people and for our immigrant communities as well, which 
which uh, rise and fall and so on. Describe to us how bad the situation, how bad is the situation in this country in relation to the number of houses we have and the number of houses we need? Sure. Well, the first thing to say is that the back half of the book Clean Brexit is a a sort of post-Brexit policy manifesto. Mm. And some of those policies are Brexit-related policies, so things you can only do once you've left the European Union. So it's regional policy, it's industrial strategy, it's free ports, it's inland free ports, which we call opportunity zones, a phrase that's now coming into vogue. It's the use of tax breaks rather than government subsidies, stuff that the EU just doesn't allow you to do. It's illegal. (laughs) It's impossible. Yeah, regional policies run by Brussels. It's not run by London mm. until we leave the European Union. And I think post this Boris election, where phrases like regional policy, industrial strategy, infrastructure are far more, these are all afterthoughts in mm. political speeches for most of our life, mm. Brendan. Now mm. they're front and center. Is, are the Tories going to be able to hold on to these northern seats, these so called forgotten towns? Uh, They're not forgotten among the people that live there. So I think all that, the Tories, what they didn't do enough of in this campaign, and which I kept urging them to do in my columns, was link really good policies that you can now do to the fact that we're leaving the European Union. So it's not just a case of get Brexit done. It's why, for what purpose, Mm. as well as the bigger purpose of because we said so, Mm. which of course is a very big purpose, but secondary purposes beyond the democratic question. And they didn't do that. So that's the first part of the policies outlined in in clean Brexit, stuff you can only do once you've left the European Union. But there's a load of other stuff that we should have just been doing anyway, Yeah. right? And I'm not saying leaving the European Union is a panacea by any means. Uh, And one of the things we should have been doing is a lot more vocational training. Now, you could say freedom of movement meant we didn't do that because you could just employ really, really smart people with, you know, very high-level degrees from accession countries and employ them as bricklayers and hey, they're amazing bricklayers, go figure. Mm. <laughs> they're actually surgeons, but mm. we don't allow them to be surgeons. So there were lots of reasons why being in the European Union was was curtailing our effort, our investment in our in in people living here, yeah. investment in higher tech facilities, because you could just get very, very high quality, quotes, cheap uh, labor. But another policy that really has nothing to do with the European Union, if I'm honest, it's just been neglected for a long, long time, is is housing. Now, the situation is such that we've built, according to Paul Cheshire, a professor at the LSE, who's probably the most respected academic researcher in Europe on housing, the UK's built between three and four million too few homes in the last 40 years. And that means that a combination of just a, a basic shortage of housing, both social housing and housing to buy and to rent, plus quantitative easing, which is bid up prices, means that the average house in the UK uh, is now eight and a half times earnings, average earnings. Whereas in the mid 90s, when I bought my first house, it was about three times average earnings. That's the reason why you have so many young people, particularly young professionals, Mm. who are priced out. So among 25 to 34 year olds in the early 90s, 65% of them owned their own home, that, that crucial family forming age. It's now under 40%. Wow. You have a situation where the age when a woman on average has her first child, it's about 27 or 28, back in 1991, 
just 15% of women that age lived in rented accommodation. Now it's 45%. So people are stopping, they're delaying having children because they don't want to be in rented accommodation because mm-hmm. it's un- uncertain, unstable. They haven't put down roots. They don't psychologically feel that they're ready. And this is a major, major problem. This is now messing with our demography. It's now messing with our politics. A lot of the reason in 2017, a lot of youngsters voted for a very radical Corbyn manifesto was because they just wanted a shake up. Yeah. So this is something that the Conservative Party desperately needs to address because the age at which people naturally become more middle of the road, maybe uh, centrist, possibly conservative voters when they own a home is now getting older and older. There's a, a cohort of, of people going into their 40s now who have given up on the idea of ever owning a home. Yeah, owning a home isn't for everybody, but it is a fabulous way to build wealth, build security, build uh, ownership in a in a valuable asset that you can then pass on to your children, which is all most people want to do. It's mm. and and so in Home Truths, I write about my childhood home in in Kingsbury, in an unfashionable suburb of Northwest London, which I guess you know well, Brendan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that my working class parents, my mum's one of 10 grew up in a council house. My dad grew up in a, you know, a little hut in the West of Ireland. The fact that they were able to work really hard, they're not professional people. They have no qualifications, you know, a bit of shorthand maybe here and there. They managed to buy a decent home in a, a clean, relatively spacious place to live in Kingsbury completely revolutionized their view of themselves. Mm. It, it was the reason my dad could having grown up in wartime Island blockaded by the British, made peace with Britain, Mm. felt that Britain was on his side, was giving him a chance because he could buy a place and own it. A huge psychological leap forward for for, for him. Almost all my childhood friends were living in first-generation home ownership homes. Many of them were immigrants, whether Irish, Greek, Jewish, uh, Muslim, Hindu. It was literally the most mixed postcode in Britain Mm. when I grew up. Um, and it's still very, very mixed. Or they grew up, or they lived in high quality, low density, low rise social housing. The key thing about the houses where we grew up is that there was space. There was green space because they were built on relatively cheap land in the 30s by builders competing hugely against each other. So the quality was as high as it could possibly be for the price people were paying. And I actually tracked down the history of my childhood home. I tracked down an advert for it in the evening news as then was. And it was 3.1 times average earnings in Britain in that year. And the company that built the home was two greengrocers from South London who started building. But their company, they built 100 homes that year. Their company was then consolidated, consolidated, consolidated. And we're now in a situation where there is an oligopoly of the house builders. There's very little competition. Uh, the top 10 house builders build over 60% of the homes. A lot of the smaller builders who build quickly, who build high quality homes, they were wiped out in the financial crisis. They haven't been replaced. Mm-hmm. And the house building industry at the top end has become extortionate. It's become a racket. There should be a competition commission inquiry. That's why you're getting absolutely massive pay packets for very mediocre house building executives pumping out substandard products, often on egregious leaseholds that are very, very small 
and low quality. And in many cases that I've discovered in various investigations I've done, not least for Channel 4 dispatches, are unsafe, lacking in basic fire prevention uh, infrastructure in, in the homes. Mm. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, of Persimmon. Persimmon will deny some of this, so they can't deny a lot of it because they've admitted it. But they've become the kind of totemic, over-influential, under-caring, rent-seeking uh, builder. But there are others. Mm. We desperately need a much, much more competitive house-building sector. It all stems, it all comes down to the structure of the industry, which is far too concentrated, and also the market for land. So when we buy and sell land in this country and it gets residential planning permission, such is the shortage of homes now that a stroke of a, a bureaucrat's pen can increase the price of land two, three, four hundred, a thousandfold, right? Now, in most other advanced industrial societies, that planning uplift, it isn't as big because mm. the shortage of homes isn't as, as serious. But in most other advanced industrial societies, so Germany and big parts of the States, um, many advanced Asian countries, the state and the landowner share that uplift. Mm. And that shared gain on the state's part goes generally into hypothecated infrastructure projects to turn those houses into a place, mm. the roads, the schools, the hospitals. So those things appear as the houses are being built. What we're getting now is that the landowners who are often the house builders too, or there are shadowy land agents involved, they take the whole lot, the whole gain. That gain is created by the community. It reflects you know, local business, local uh, transport infrastructure. Um, that gain should be shared. Mm. And Britain is an outlier, Brendan. We are not sharing that gain. It's still a feudal system that we have where the landowner slash house builder gets all the upside from that planning uplift. And that's the change we need yeah. to make. Final question then, because I think lots of people agree that the housing shortage is a serious problem in this country, not simply for how people live, but as you say, it impacts on demography, it impacts on people's sense of belonging. It productivity. Product people uh, can't live near enough to work to take the right, right jobs. So uh, everything... Massive long commutes, mental health. Yeah, everything. Uh, so many things touch upon the issue of where people live and, and how they feel about where they live. So the, the, the lack of house building, I think everyone in politics pretty much agrees that's a significant problem. What do you think is the block to government doing something about it and do you think this new government with its strange alliance of mm. constituencies will finally break that block and and tackle the house shortage not everyone agrees that there's a problem i mean there is there is a incredibly there is a kind of no shortage lobby a group of economists some of them you know with the ha big house builders as their clients mm. spreading the idea which many economic commentators are sucking up and spouting out verbatim because there's a market for the notion, oh, we don't need to build any more houses, right? I mean, a lot of people want to hear that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of politicians want to hear that. A lot of NIMBYs right. want to hear that. Yeah. And these people, uh, you know, they're, they're making headway. I mean, it's a ridiculous argument. And in the book, Chapter 6, The No Shortage Myth, I, I, I like to think I destroy the argument, mm. but a lot of politicians accept it because they want to hear it. But if you accept that there is a shortage... The main problem is, as I said, competition in the house building industry and the fact that smaller builders can't get hold of land at a reasonable price because the market for land is very, very speculative. 
when houses were built in the 30s, my childhood home, the land price was 5% of the value of the house. Houses that were built in the 50s, the land price was about 10% of the value of the house. Houses built now, the land price is 70% of the value of the house. So even big builders are paying huge amounts for land, mm. which means there's no money to build the house. Yeah. So the house is substandard. Yeah. We're building pokey little houses. <laughs> the houses we're building now have smaller living rooms than houses built in the 30s, which was a, a decade you know, ravaged by shortages and economic chaos. Mm. We're putting up very, very substandard cardboard homes and people are paying well over the odds for them often on egregious leaseholds. It's absolutely terrible. So if you take the huge step of imposing laws that mean you share that planning uplift between the state and the landowner slash house builder, the speculative heat in the land market will gradually subside mm. and houses will gradually, it won't be a big crash, will gradually correct so they're more in line. The growth of house prices is more in line with the growth of average earnings. And why isn't it happening? Because this is an idea that isn't, you know, this isn't a, a, an outlandish idea. This is what happens in many other advanced industrial countries. It used to happen in the UK mm. in the 50s until the Tories reversed the law in the early 60s at the behest of the house building industry and massive landowners. And you have what I describe in the book, an iron triangle of vested interests keeping us where we are with this completely uh, suboptimal housing market situation. And the iron triangle vested interests, on one side of the triangle, you've got existing property owners, right? Massively powerful lobby, they vote. Now that side of the triangle is starting to subside a little bit because a lot of those house builders, ha homeowners, have got kids who can't buy yeah. homes and they're worried. But the other side of that triangle is that you have um, the big house builders. Now, they are second only to the financial services industry in terms of donations to the Conservative Party, mm. right? A lot of this is about the relationship between landowners, builders, and the Conservative Party, mm. I'm afraid. So that's that's a very staunch side of the triangle. And the third side of the triangle, probably the most powerful vested interest in this country, are the banks, because they are up to their neck in property loans, yeah. right? And they don't want to any, see anything that possibly will slow down the rate of increase of house prices. Yeah. So that's why they don't loan to small businesses. They want these local monopolies in house building so the big house builders can drip feed the market with this contrived scarcity. Mm. It's in, I mean, the ability of house, big house builders to control supply to the point where they can massively push up prices, right? That's why the housing market is broken. That's not capitalism. This is a lack of capitalism. This is a lack of competition. So you've got to strike out and take on and tackle these vested interests to bring about a situation where the housing market, one of the most important markets in our country, certainly in terms of people's household budget and life chances and you know, social mobility, psychology, family security, mental health. It couldn't really be more important. Second only to the market for food, I would mm. say. It's just not working because it's uh, completely entombed by these vested interests. Look, every now and then you have to give capitalism a kick in the nuts, mm. right? Teddy Roosevelt did it in America in the early 20th century, where he took on 
the big oil companies and the big sugar trusts and the copper trusts and all the rest of it. You have to shake things up from time to time to make sure that markets work properly. Now, has the Conservative Party got the intellectual grip, the political energy to take on some of this agenda? We'll see. Liam, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.